understood what that meant that time, yeah. So without uh, saying anything more, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, we stand here amazed. Amazed at the things we see each day. As we live in a sinful world, it's amazing to us the ways that the world crafts new ways, which aren't really new ways. They're the same ways that sin has been going on for the beginning of time, but just different ways of doing the same sin. So, dearly Father, give us wisdom. We desperately need it. At times it seems as if you hear one thing that breaks your heart and in the moment you hear another. As a country, we don't even know which way to look. But praise be to God. Your word shines like a beacon into this confusion, bringing clarity and hope. So help us not to waver. Thank you for these words that were brought by your Holy Spirit, penned through Peter, that speak through the ages, giving us wisdom and giving us principles to live. You've called us for such a time as this. So may we awake, awake from our slumber, and to boldly proclaim the truth, knowing it is by the truth that people are saved. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you had the privilege of uh, either being an aunt or an uncle or a parent or a grandparent of little toddlers, uh, you have probably said something like this, don't go by the water, it's dangerous, right? If you buy a home that has a pool, you're supposed to put a fence around it because water is dangerous, right? That's what we tell kids all the time. But if you spend any time at a pool, you will see a child, usually they're in the toddler age, with more flotation devices that could keep up three to four people, right? They're just packed with these things, standing on the edge, and a parent standing within inches of them with hands out like this in the water saying, jump. And the toddler looks at the parent and is like, I don't know if I should jump or not because you've said it's dangerous, but now you want me to jump into it with you. And so there's a lot of mixed messages there. That's the same one that I always love to say to our kids, don't talk to strangers. Why aren't you being polite to those people? And you're like, well, which one is it? Am I talking to strangers? Am I not talking to strangers? Because I didn't know that guy, but you said, why didn't you say hi? Well, you told me not to talk to strangers, so which one is it? And so now we're standing here by the pool, and this kid's going, should I jump in or should I not? And the parent's there, and they say something like, Dude, trust me, I'll catch you. And then the child has to go, have they ever let me down before, right? You know, you got that going in the back of their mind. And finally, the child eventually jumps into the parent's arms, maybe they get their feet wet type of deal. And you know, the parent's like, how exciting! And you go, woohoo, isn't this great, right? And they're kind of like, I don't know if it was or not. And then all of a sudden, they get it, and that's all they want to do then for the rest of the time. And then as a parent, you are now in the pool catching them over and over again, even to the point where, if you're in our family, as long as you say, mom and dad, I'm jumping, whether you are looking at them or not, they're just jumping at you and expecting you to catch them. And so we've gone into the point where now we trust mom and dad to catch us even if they're paying attention or not. This idea of, do you trust me? We're going to see in 1 Peter chapter 2. But I would really encourage us as we try to look at this example of Jesus' example of suffering and do you trust me? And we'll see these two things played out. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start in verse 20. 
And we'll read all the way down to verse 25. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he, w- when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were, like, you were straying like sheep, but now, ha- but now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls." Remember last week we looked at that, to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example. Last week we talked about Christ's suffering, and that's where we were down in verses 24 and 25. But now we're going to talk about that example that Christ left for us, and we'll be mainly sticking in verses 22 and 23. But I want to make sure we're clear on this. Point number one is that we've been called to suffer. Now, there are two aspects of suffering. I'm going to say the same coin of the idea of suffering You have the suffering that comes because we live in a sinful world, right? Because you live in a sinful world, people are going to die, people are going to get cancer and all those other things that come with it. That's just the suffering of living in a sinful world. But there's another suffering that comes as a believer of Christ that you're going to suffer because of what you believe. There's that type of suffering. Because when we, so what happens is Peter is going to sometimes turn the corner many different times. He's going to talk about the suffering of just living in a sinful world, that what God uses, and God even uses the suffering of living in a sinful world for our own sanctification. But then we also have the suffering that comes. If you're a follower of God, there's going to be suffering that comes, and Peter's going to argue that point as well. And so you're going to see this, and sometimes we can use them interchangeably, but because we suffer as followers of God because we live in a sinful world. Well, that, like, that's also a point there, because sinners mock what they do not understand, and they persecute what they do not understand. So you live in a sinful world, you're going to suffer. That's kind of the point of what Peter is trying to tell us here. But that being said, I want to look at the ebb and flow of Peter's argument, and even the ebb and flow of our own Christian walk. So, just obviously a little background of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, second in the Trinity, equal to God as well as all the other benefits that have come as the only begotten Son of God. All right? He was redeeming the world. He also, by his, he was the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And all of the privileges that come with being in the Trinity. All right? He is God. Now, what also came with that immense privilege was immense suffering. And as followers of God, Peter is also going to walk us through immense privilege of being a follower of God, but also immense suffering. And so we should see those two things carried out. And I would just want to walk through, if Jesus had immense privilege, yet continual suffering in his life here on earth, so should we. Let's just take a little journey through 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, We'll be in verses 6 and 7. Here's what Peter's talking about to the believers. And all of the immense privilege of being born again to a living hope in verses 3 through 5. That Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead, you have an inheritance, an imperishable, undefiled inheritance kept in heaven for you. And then he goes from immense privilege to, in this you rejoice, not for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Continuing on, you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Immense privilege of being a follower of God. Now he goes, from this standing of immense privilege, here's what you need to do. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as outcasts, suffering outcasts, abstain from the passage of the flesh which war against the soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, not if they, but when they speak and they say you're evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see this immense privilege of a follower of God, but what? Suffering that's coming. Even to a passage of scripture that we haven't got yet to in 1 Peter 5.10. Listen to what Peter says. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So after you suffered a little while, we're back to privilege. This privilege and suffering is the call of the Christian walk. This privilege does not get you out of suffering. This privilege, if you haven't learned, this privilege is what calls you into a life of suffering. But what I'd like to do for a moment is a lot of times we forget and we miss the big picture. So I want to walk through an example of living in a sinful world and trying to see the big picture of suffering and many of the things that as we live in a sinful world, many times we miss. There's a story about a man who loses his son in a tragic accident. The man goes to see this old pastor and the man, the tears are running down this man's eyes as he's, his son has been lost in this tragic accident. And the man says, like many people say, where was God when my son died? Where was he? The old pastor places his hands on the man's shoulders and says this. He was exactly in the same place when his son died. On the throne, in control. What he was trying to do was the man's eyes were so down here that he didn't see the bigger picture. It was, the man was basically saying, was God off his throne that day, out of, not in control of things? That's why suffering came about. And the old pastor was saying, no, he is in complete control. Because even in R.C. Sproul's book, suffering, Surprised by Suffering, he even says we need to look back at the big picture. Because he says there are times when we suffer innocently at other people's hands. When that occurs, we are victims of injustice. But injustice happens on a horizontal plane. No one ever su suffers injustice on the vertical plane. That is, no one ever suffers unjustly in terms of his or her relationship with God. As long as we bear the guilt of sin, we cannot protest that God is unjust in allowing us to suffer. We are feeling the weight of our sin. Now, injustice is happening this way, but justice only happens in this direction here, where God gives us what we rightly deserved. That is why we cry out for His mercy and grace, because those are things that we're getting what we don't deserve. Because if He gave us what we did deserve, we would be crushed. So we can never claim that God is being unjust. Because when we start to see the bigger picture, we start to see that anything in our lives that we have is a gift from God. Because we live in a sinful world. 
I want to make sure we're clear on this. We live in a sinful world. Many times I think we forget that. Many times I think we think that we live in a world where just sometimes bad things happen, but are they really that bad and everything else? And so literally, if you listen to even our verbiage, how we have tried to even downplay sin, and we've tried to make it say that, like, one of my favorite things to do is watch politicians try to describe that they didn't lie. You know, well, I didn't really lie. I just didn't represent the whole truth. You know, like, no, you lied. Or they said, I just massaged the truth. And you're like, no, 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 you lied. Like, you said this and this happened, right? That's called a lie, all right? But they will do anything they can because if you can downplay the verbiage, then all of a sudden you're not confronted with the truth of actually somebody lied. And because lying, we don't like that word lie, right? And so we try to do whatever we can. When the truth is brought about to a sinful world, when the truth is confronted in a sinful world, a sinful world, by definition, will reject it. I mean, that's something that I I pray that by the time we get done with this, it should not surprise us that the sinful world rejects the truth. And if you're a bearer of the truth, guess what? By definition, you will be. You will be rejected. And so here's at the crux of this is what I ask. And this is what I ask my own heart and my own self over and over again. This is the question that I ask. And because a guy one time asked me this, and it just really started to just mull in my own mind. He said this to me, Tim, would you ever be convicted of being a Christian? And it really started in my mind because you know how I'll give you a legalistic Tim says, well, I'm doing all the things that a Christian does, right? But he went past that. He said, if they were to look into your heart and your desires, would you be convicted ever of being a Christian? How I think and how I move, would that be such? And it started to make me think through this because here's the thing. You start looking and going, I wouldn't say that in my life that I'm seeing immense suffering like Jesus' example here. The question could be, well, if you're not standing for the truth, guess what? No one's going to reject you because you're not standing for the truth. You're just standing for whatever they're standing for. So let's take a look here in verse 22. To what is this, what have we been called to? So in verse 22, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So we're going to see point number two is the unjust suffering of Jesus. What we see here is that Jesus, he committed no sin. Jesus did not sin his way into suffering. It wasn't if Jesus did something wrong and then he suffered because of it. Jesus suffered, as we would literally say, in injustice. There was nothing that he did wrong, even to the point where the Roman, Roman authorities said, we find no fault with this guy. And they were like, that's great, but crucify him anyway. Next, we see that there was no deceit in his mouth. Deceit is the idea of where he hid the truth in order to allow himself to get more power or prestige. This idea of being deceitful is hiding things in order to make yourself better. Because what we're going to see here is this. We can never let our response to unjust suffering be the reason why we're getting suffering. And I'll explain what we mean by that. Because look what the text goes down even further to say. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That's what we see here. When he was mocked, when he was bitten, I mean, uh, uh, hit, when he was, when he was, his beard was taken from his, from his beard there, when he was beaten by the men, when he was whipped, when all of these things happened, what did he do? 
He did not mock or criticize back. This is the part that I think is mind-boggling to myself. Remember when they blindfolded Jesus and they hit him? And they said, who hit you? And Jesus literally could have traced that person's lineage back to Adam and said, by the way, I can let you know who hit me and tell you everything about this single person. In all of our earthly, we would go, and I could tell you so much more. But what did he do? He was silent. Why? Because that was how God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus had determined how his son would die. He would be a sheep that was led to the slaughter and his mouth would be silent. That was what was prophesied and that was what was done. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not say, it's coming. Just want to let you all know, 70 AD, Titus is going to come through and wipe you all out. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, you just wait. You know, no. What was his response? When he did speak, he said this, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. They have no clue what they're doing. Why? Was it because they really, they'd never come up with this whole crucifixion thing before and they're like, I don't know, let's just try this. No, it was not their ignorance. What it was was their blind ignorance to the truth. They were rejecting the truth in front of them. Sin had so blinded them, they had no idea what they were doing. And Jesus saw their blindness and it moved it to compassion. From the blindness of sin that Jesus saw, so he does not revile back, he does not threaten back. Why? Because he saw the blindness of these people, then he was moved with compassion upon them. And now my question that we have to, for you right now is this. We literally are living in a month that we have dedicated, as sadly in a sinful world, to the sin of pride. All right, we literally say pride, which was the sin at the garden that destroyed us and sent us all into destruction where we said we know our own way. And so we've dedicated a month in the United States, which is interesting. Go look at the companies in foreign nations and what they're doing. But we have decided to brainwash our society for a month. We're going to be proud about how confused we are. And what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate as much debauchery as we possibly can and say we're proud of it and we're going to try to celebrate it. And not only that, we're going to add as much confusion onto it as we possibly can. And so, what we need to do then is we need to come up with a symbol that's going to celebrate this, a symbol that God had used to remind us that He is never going to wipe out the earth ever again in the same way He did with the flood. He will come back to judge with fire. And this symbol that God placed His symbol in the sky, we're going to take that in our pride and say, it's no longer your symbol, but it's going to be our symbol. And we're going to remind ourselves of how prideful we are. And everybody goes who knows anything about the Bible goes, that's not a good symbol. That symbol carries a lot of negativity that God literally destroyed the world because of sin. Now, He's promised He's not going to destroy it that same way, but what does He also say in that? I will destroy it by fire. All right, so the rainbow is a promise that we won't be flooded to death, but it's also a reminder that we will be burned one day through judgment. But let's put that on everything to remind ourselves of why God is coming back to judge. And not only that, the irony of it all is when Jesus says, just like in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man returns. 
and we're all running around with the sign of Noah, reminding ourselves of the judgment that is needed. I mean, the irony is so thick, it is just amazing. And now what do we do? Do we sit there and get angry about all these things? Do we sit there and say, can you believe it is happening? And by God's grace, I pray that we get over the can you believe that it's happening and say this is what happens when we live in a sinful world and our hearts and our minds will be moved with compassion to these people that are literally lost. And when I'm not even just saying spiritually lost, but lost all the way down to the very core where they no longer can even determine their own gender because they are that confused. Now, do we sit there and go, can you believe how ignorant they are? And I would say, yes, this is what happens. Romans 1 tells us this. This this should not, for Bible reading Christians, you should not be surprised that this is what has happened. You should not be going, whoa, can you believe this is happening? Say, well, this is what Paul literally wrote about. And we're not the first country to ever have this happen. We're not the first town to ever have this happen in. There's two towns in the Bible that this happened in. One was Sodom and the other one was Gomorrah. All right? So this shouldn't surprise us. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon tells us. But we live in a day and age where mankind is so blind that persecution is inevitable. We're going to talk about that for a moment because we need to make sure. Because of the blindness of sin, and when sin comes in and it blinds, it makes people angry at even the truth. And when the truth is set up, the truth will be attacked. And so what we need to make sure is we put on our biblical glasses of what is suffering and persecution. Because if we do not understand that, if we do not have a good working definition of it, we will join with the five things I wrote down in my notes that are not persecution. But if you do not believe that the church is to be a battleship, if you believe the church is a cruise liner... These things will be persecution. You know, when you're on a cruise line, if you have to stand in line for a meal, you're like, boy, this is suffering, right? But if you're on a battleship, life is totally different than if you're on a cruise liner. But for the majority of our life, sadly, we have bought the lie that the church is a cruise liner, that we're supposed to be on this cruise liner, that we're supposed to be entertaining ourselves, instead of understanding that we've been called to live in our lives as a battleship, proclaiming the truth, going into enemy territory, and taking back captives. So this is what suffering and persecution is not. It is not having a social media post with no likes. You post something and no one gives you the thumbs up. That is not suffering. If someone forgets your birthday, that is not suffering. If you're not the popular one and somebody else is popular, that is not suffering. Doing a juice diet That is not suffering. Even though you may look like a wreck, that is not biblical suffering. Sitting through this sermon is not biblical suffering. Now it may be suffering, but it's not biblical suffering in the same way. But I did that little tongue-in-cheek to go, there's so many things we think are suffering, right? That we just go, can you believe it? I mean, the closest most of us got to suffering was wondering during the the whole COVID thing, are we going to have enough toilet paper, right? You know, and you're like, you know, I had to go to three stores before I bought some. That's suffering, right? This is suffering and persecution. This is the best definition that I was able to come up with as I looked at many different places. Suffering and persecution is the act of harassing or oppressing or killing people because of their difference from society. You're different from society and you are harassed oppressed or killed. So that would mean 
Christian suffering or persecution is harassing, oppressing, or killing people because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And the fact that their belief in Jesus Christ is not conformed to the godlessness of a sinful world. Now Peter is here to remind us. Remember Peter multiple times it said, when they malign you for not acting like them, when they go to all their parties, do all their things, and you don't join them, and they go, why aren't you joining us? And they start mocking you. Peter says it's coming. Now though, this idea of all of this struggle and strife, um, one of the reasons why we wrestle in American Christianity with the concept of suffering and persecution, and I literally would say it's because I would go back to what Jesus had said to the Pharisees, have you not read? All right, because if I remember again, if you were to take the average person who claims himself to be a Christian in America, most of them would say, if you're a Christian in America, good things happen. Jesus came to make good things happen. All right? He was just a guy that came, and Jesus literally came to make peace with everybody, and he's just a peace-loving guy up there with almost like a weird hippie version of Jesus. All right? Well, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. And hopefully that clay pigeon idea that's flying in the air, we blast it out of the sky. Because Jesus does in Matthew chapter 10. If Jesus is... The next Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers does not speak like this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, before you all pick up your guns, let's keep reading what he said. Verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up this cross, his cross. Remember, that is it literally, we put it, that would be the noose, that would be the electric chair. This is the, the thing that's going to kill you. If you're not willing to take up the thing that will kill you and follow me, He is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is a paradigm shift like none other. All of us have tried to buy this lie that peace and just happiness is coming. Literally what Christ says is this. That's coming later. But what he came here on earth here was to separate literally truth from error. And this separating truth from error will literally divide even down to the most intimate relationships are possible, which are what? Your kids and your parents and all of these other things. When the word of God comes in and the exclusivity of Christ is there is no other way. Like this is one of the things that the world absolutely hates in this embrace of relativism where you do you and we do we and all these other things like that. When Christ comes in and he says there is no other way under heaven given among men where someone must be saved but Jesus, those are fighting terms. There is no way of sugarcoating it. It's either you're on the team or you're not. There is no middle ground. And literally this is what he's saying. This is what's going to divide people. And this division will come. 
Because he said, if you want to be a follower of me, you're going to take literally the mechanism of suffering, the cross on your shoulders, and you're going to follow me. This is what the call is. And it is going to divide. Now, again, I want to make sure we're clear on this. We don't just use the excuse, well, if the gospel offends, so should we. No, 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 no. You don't be abrasive in your sharing of the truth. But the truth, by definition, will be abrasive to those who are embracing error. You following that? You don't go around and go, I just want to let you know you're going to die and go to hell. Where did that come from, all right? Now, it's the truth, but then there's, as always, like, there's the way to say it, and then there's the way you said it type of deal, and you wonder where this struggle is going. Remember, we are called into this world to be loving and our speech to be seasoned with salt, but the salt is the truth that the Word of God will go forth with power. Now, just in case if you're wondering, maybe Jesus was having an off moment here. He did not. John 15. Jesus is going to reiterate this again. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Remember this exile living? This is what Peter is hitting on again. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, the word I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And he goes on to talk about even more. They hate us. Why? Because they hated him. Why did they hate Christ? Because he stood for the truth and did not waver. Interesting, this last week, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays were uh, celebrating as an organization uh, the sinful lifestyles and debauchery that we're celebrating this month as a nation. And there was a group of men who were on the team that uh, as they were handing out all the rainbow symbols and everything to be put on their jerseys and their hats, said, thanks, but no thanks, we're not going to wear them, we'll just wear our normal hats. And the reason why they gave was because they had religious convictions. And the world, as uh, Albert Moeller loves to remind us, the world says you can be a Christian as long as you don't hold Christian values. We don't mind Christians, but when you hold Christian values, then we get upset. Because the, what the world had done was this. It's not only that you have to be silent. Silence is not okay. You have to wholeheartedly approve of what we're doing. It wasn't as if these men came out and they said, everybody who does all of these things is evil, nor did these men come out and say, we want everybody else to conform to our worldview. They just said, we're not going to wear it. They didn't even write a whole letter saying, we just want to let everybody know that we hate everybody else. No. But what the world said is, you are not conforming to our way of thinking. We cannot accept that. That is not acceptable at all. We are going to go after you, not only until you are no longer silent, we need to have you wholeheartedly approve of our sinful message. And we sit here and we say to ourselves, what as a church body do we need to be ready for? Because I would 
like to remind you that even these players and everything else about them, this, this whole world movement will go after these men and continually until they destroy them. Because disagreement is not an option. It is only a matter of time. And maybe the time has come, but we just haven't seen it yet. As we like to say, maybe the basement's flooding. It just hasn't made it to the first floor we're living on yet. But here's what's happening. As the church gets weaker, as we move further and further away from the the Bible, the core that God has given us, it's only a matter of time until this group realizes that we can go after them. That they have convictions, but they're not really convictions. They're more like preferences. That as long as we push against them hard enough, they will cave. And I would encourage us that this suffering is coming And this suffering will come. Literally, they did it to Christ, they will do it to us when they mock us for standing for the truth. And here's the thing that is very interesting. Some of the things that we thought were just given statements of humanity, all the way down to, like, who you are. As they are continually under assault... It is only a matter of time before that turns all of its weapons against the church, and the church must stand. So the key to enduring this unjust suffering, the key of Christ, when he was reviled, when he was persecuted, the key to this all, point three, the key to enduring unjust suffering was this. We see this here in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's the key. Here are the marching orders, I don't even call it. When we go, how does a church survive when they come after us? How do you survive when you're an employer or an employee and all of this stuff is coming after you? What is the response? The response is this, just like Christ did, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God judges justly. This here literally is what I believe is in the mind of uh, Peter when he's writing this, turn to Romans chapter 12. Here's what Paul wrote. And through the same Holy Spirit that Peter is writing this, Paul is writing Romans as well. In Romans chapter 12, we'll start at verse 16. Actually, we'll go all the way back to 14. Why not, right? Let's get a, whole, let's get a running start here. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, now, you can see this urging as he's saying... Loved ones of God is another way of what he's saying there. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The response of the believer... To persecution is not to be persecuted back, but to bless them. The response of unjust suffering is to trust God and leave it to the wrath of God who judges justly. And isn't this what Jesus taught all throughout? He says, if they they ask you to carry a cloak one mile, what are you supposed to do? 
Carry it too. If they come at you with this and they say that, you go out of your way to do what they've asked you to do because you're not doing it for them. You are doing it for God. You do not return evil for evil. Because when injustice is done, our job is to not sit there and say, you know what, let me be the one to do it. We leave it to God. We entrust it to God. It's interesting that even these things that, that are played out here, in 1 Peter 3, 9, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those who are called that you may obtain a blessing. The response to suffering that Peter's called us to is a complete and utter reversal of our way of thinking. Just like what Christ did on the cross. It was not that he was there saying, I'm going to go after these guys and it's only a matter of time. There have been songs written that how he could have called 10,000 angels to just take him off the cross and destroy all these people. But what did he do? No, that was not the plan. The plan was to submit to his father. So when this persecution and the suffering comes in, I would argue, number one, you count it joy that you've been chosen to suffer like Christ did. There's a joy that should come with that. Not a weird statistic joy, but a joy of saying, thank you that I have been chosen to suffer like my Savior. But also, there is an anchor that should anchor us through this, that we don't have to wonder what God has called us to, we don't have to sit there and say, I wonder what I've been called to do as you trust him, as you trust in his sovereign control in your life, as you trust in his sovereign control over the whole wide world, you will live a life that's saying, do you trust me? And the answer would be, as you live your life, yes, I do. Whatever that comes, whatever comes our way, that's what we do. We trust him. It's interesting, in the role of pain and death in the life of a Christian, and by surprised by suffering, R.C. Sproul goes on to say, those who understand God's sovereignty have joy even in the midst of suffering, a joy reflected on their faces, for they see their suffering is not without purpose. Now, the interesting part, and I would, I'll, when we get back from vacation, we'll talk about 1 Peter 3. And I said this jokingly one time to my dad, as we were said, isn't it interesting Peter goes right from suffering into marriage? All right. And my dad said, there is a reason for that, because guess what relationships are? Two sinful people living together, and there is a type of suffering of living together with another sinful person. That happens. But God has given us a path and a pattern to do. Now, don't go home and say, I've really learned how to suffer by being married to you. That was not the point. But in relationships, let's be honest, all relationships, sinful relationships here on earth, there's, a, there's suffering. There are times where your friends will have done something that has, boy, that really got underneath my skin and all the struggles that come with it all, right? But I want to remind us of this as we kind of wrap up suffering here. Suffering is part of the process of perfecting and conforming you into the image of Christ. Peter talks about this all the time. This is what God uses, that, that melting of the heart of the metal that is in there to take off the dross, all of these things suffering does. It exposes who you really are. It's like those comments in my mind, I go, if all of a sudden someone yelled fire when I was in the house, what do I grab? 
That's where your heart is. When suffering happens in my life, whether it's persecution that has been brought because of my stance for the truth or persecution that happens by just living in a sinful world, how do I respond? It exposes who you are. and exposes where your heart is. Now, this call to suffer, though, is a call to suffer patiently, waiting on God and His time. Because here's what the danger is. We celebrate that God heals Robin, and when I had the chance of speaking with her this week, we were rejoicing in that. But when we close our time of prayer, I said, well, you know, there will be another illness that takes you. doesn't look like it will be cancer, but it will be something else. Because either you will be here when the Lord returns, or you will meet him in death. And, well, it doesn't look like this cancer will kill you. And she goes, I know, something else will. But until that day comes, what are we called to do? Faithfully follow him. And patiently wait on God's timing. Because there will be people that God chose to heal on the other side of eternity. That he did not choose to bring healing on this side. And so, does that mean he is no longer sovereign? We're no longer in control? No. We wait patiently for him. So when we say, what did we learn today? What, what are the truths that Peter is talking to us about all the time? He's saying this. Just like Christ entrusted himself to the Father who judges rightly and justly, we are to be people of faith and trust in him. And so what does this trust look like? I believe here Peter in verse 25 is reminding us this trust looks like this because he reminds us that you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. And when you trust God as the shepherd, the overseer of your souls, you place yourself under his authority and you say, God, I trust you. Whatever comes, whatever comes my way, I trust you. This is what Job understood. And literally Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. That even if he kills me in this world, I'm still going to trust in him. And he even goes on to say, you know what? Even if my body is gone, this one thing I want to remember, that I know that my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to see him on the other side. So let come what may is kind of the Christian attitude. It's not a, it's not a case sirrah, sirrah, but there's a little bit of that, of going, God's got this. I'm going to preach the truth. I'm going to proclaim the truth. Let come what may. He's in control. And whether he takes me or I... Meet him in the air one way or the other. I'm going to be with him forever. And we see the eternal picture. And the things of this world start to go strangely dim. And they don't cause us to become unwound. They cause us to have a heart of compassion. Because we have yet to see the sin and debauchery that's still planned for the rest of this month. We have yet to see it. So how do you respond? Does your heart break for these people? Does your heart break that you start to cry out to God, open their eyes, redeem them? Do we care enough to share the gospel with them? Knowing that we will be persecuted, knowing that by very definition of you saying that there is a truth that does not change, no matter what you think, no matter how you feel, there is an absolute truth that does not change. And as you stand on that, and as you don't waver from that, persecution, the Bible says, will come, be ready. But you're not standing in your own strength. You, the Holy Spirit has been here to guide you and to comfort you and to help you. He is the great helper. That's why Jesus left. We're about ready to sing a song, Savior, 
like a shepherd lead us. And this is what we are called to do, is to follow him. And as we follow him, these are the, the truths that we are about to explain and proclaim here. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that you set the example for us. That when you were reviled, when you were mocked, when you were scorned, you did not return in such and allowed us to see the beauty of returning, mocking and scorning with blessing. Dear Holy Father, help us to truly entrust our hearts and our lives to you, knowing that it's you that is going to protect us safely home. We need your help. Guide us. Give us a discerning heart that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had while they were in the foreign country, that they had purpose in their hearts that they will not defile themselves. And so, dearly Father, may we have that same boldness. That whether it's the fiery furnace, or whether it's a loss of a job, or it's a loss of a friendship, may we stand like these young men and say, let it be known to you, we're not going to serve anyone other than God. Give us that boldness. In your son's name we pray. Amen.